Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Morning, everyone. We are so glad you are with us on this Wednesday. I'm here again with my friend Victor Blackwell. Good morning. Good morning. Good, good to night. be here for day three. A good near, night in New York City. Yeah, with the Melvins yesterday, <gasps> had some good salmon. It was delicious. The best yes. in Harlem. All right. Well, we're so glad you're with us. Let's get started with five things to know for this Wednesday, June 21st. New overnight, CNN has learned that crews searching for the Titan submersible detected banging sounds underwater yesterday. Also, a Canadian aircraft reported a white rectangular object in the water at one point. This huge search continues, though. Time is running out for the five people on board. The U.S. Coast Guard warns there's only about 24 hours of oxygen left. Hunter Biden strikes a deal with federal prosecutors and Republicans are furious. They're claiming a double standard is at play and are vowing to continue investigating the Bidens. And a federal judge sets a date for Donald Trump's criminal trial in the classified documents case. New polling from CNN also shows a softening in support for the former president among Republican voters, but he is still by far the clear frontrunner. For the first time, U.S. medical experts are recommending all adults under 65 be screened for anxiety disorders. This comes just after a recommendation to screen children eight and above. And millions of Americans face scorching temperatures again this morning as hundreds of thousands wake up with no power. CNN This Morning starts right now. is where we begin such a big development yeah. overnight. This banging now that's been heard, what does it mean? Where is it coming from? That's exactly right. And consistent time periods may be indicating hope, something hopeful, a major development overnight in this search for the sub that went missing while diving on the Titanic shipwreck. The U.S. Coast Guard says a Canadian surveillance plane has also detected underwater noises in the area. They heard banging sounds at 30-minute intervals yesterday. That's according to an internal government memo. Time is quickly running out to save the five people who were on board. It's estimated that they would only have about one day left of breathable air at this point if that sub is still intact. We have learned that the pilot of the Titan submersible was Stockton Rush. He is the CEO and the founder of the company Ocean Gate. They, of course, operate that submersible. There are also new questions this morning about the safety and the regulation of it. Two former Ocean Gate employees separately voiced concerns about the safety of this vessel, the Titan, years ago. So let's begin there with CNN international correspondent Paula Newton, who has the latest. Good morning, Paula. And good morning to you, Poppy. You know, this hopeful news is also quite chilling, right? I mean, think about it. You're uh, more than two miles beneath the surface, perhaps, and desperately trying to get someone's attention. They picked up this banging from sonar buoys that were put on the surface of the ocean. That was that Canadian aircraft. And all of this coming, as you point out, with about 24 hours of oxygen left. A sound of hope in the search and rescue of the missing submersible with five people on board, according to an internal U.S. government memo, 
Sonar picked up banging sounds underneath the water Tuesday at 30-minute intervals. Regular 30-minute intervals is, is a, is a man-made thing. It's not a natural occurrence. It doesn't happen like that in nature. It, it is a good sign of hope. The memo was not clear as to when the banging was heard on Tuesday or how long it lasted. They can triangulate on noise. Again, it's only happening every 30 minutes. They, they only have a, a, a data update every 30 minutes. So if it was happening every minute, it'd be a lot easier and a lot faster. However, time continues to be a critical factor as the vessel's oxygen supply dwindles. We will do everything in our power to, uh, to effect a rescue. So far, the U.S. Coast Guard says it has searched an area about the size of Connecticut. Getting salvage equipment on scene is a top priority. The U.S. Navy is sending a flyaway deep ocean salvage system similar to the one pictured here for retrieving heavy underwater items like the small submersible. On board, OceanGate CEO and founder Stockton Rush, British adventurer and businessman Hamish Harding, one of Pakistan's richest men, British businessman Shazada Dawood, and his 19-year-old son, Suleiman Dawood. And the vessel's pilot, French submariner and ex-Navy officer, Paul-Henri Nargiolet. If I was in a bind with anybody, it would be Paul-Henri Nargiolet. He would do everything he can, and uh, without panic, uh, to work his way out of that situation. As the ongoing search and rescue continues, we're learning of concerns in 2018 regarding the planned expedition of the submersible to that Titanic wreckage site. In the letter obtained by the New York Times and addressed to the Ocean Gate CEO Stockton Rush, the Manned Underwater Vehicles Committee of the Marine Technology Society raised these concerns. Our apprehension is that the current experimental approach adopted by OceanGate could result in the negative outcomes from minor to catastrophic that would have serious consequences for everyone in the industry. You know, we have at CNN continually reached out to OceanGate for comment about that, Poppy. We have not heard anything. I want to go back to something that was in the report, though, right? You've got Stockton Rush, the CEO, and the French mariner, uh, Bon-Ari and Arjola. These are two of the best experts you can have down there. If the banging did come from the submersible, that's likely why. They knew that they would be putting those sonar buoys in the water, likely assumed they would be. Now the hard part, Poppy, right, is finding that submersible and then trying to lift it to the surface if indeed it is still on the seabed. Poppy. There is hope this morning, Paula. Thank you very much for the reporting. Let's bring in now David Gallo. He is the senior advisor for the strategic initiatives for RMS Titanic Incorporated, which owns the exclusive salvage rights to the Titanic wreck site. David, uh, good to have you back. So these uh, 30-minute intervals of the banging, is there training that suggests that if you are in this situation to do that so that they know, anyone searching, that it's not occurring naturally? It's, uh, I don't know about any formal training, but it's something that you think people will do. You see it in movies, in World War II movies, where the sub is stuck on the bottom. Uh, but it is something, it's not natural. That'd be uh, very unusual for it to be natural. Uh, but it's something P.H. Nargile would certainly do. And one of the wonders I have is that, did they make any signal back, acoustically noise back mm -hmm. to signal to the sub that uh, we hear their signal? Would there be something in this sub, uh, based on what we know, that could pick that up? Mm -hmm. 
Oh, you would hear it through the, I'd be surprised if you didn't hear it through the sub. Uh, ocean, uh, sound carries very easily in the ocean and the right frequency and all that stuff, you would hear it in the sub for sure. Your personal friends with, um, with Paul Henri Nargolet, and I just wonder if you could speak to him and what he brings to this, you know, now family of five down there fighting for their life, uh, what he would bring to them inside. Yeah, apart from being my friend, he is yeah. a part of that five. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, my heart goes out to that, every, all the loved ones of those uh, people. Uh, Paul Henri, PH as we call him, mm-hmm. uh, one of the nicest people that walked the face of the earth. He's calm, he's thoughtful, uh, whether he's on the deck of a rolling ship in the middle of a storm or in a Parisian cafe. So, uh, and, and uh, smart, smarter beyond smart, if I was going to the Titanic, uh, he'd be the first person I call. He's the person that we worked with to make the Air France 447 search successful. Mm. He's the person that, he's also an employee of RMS Titanic Inc. that uh, helped uh, create the first d- detailed map of the Titanic in 2010. Mm. Now, uh, again, I said that you're with RMS uh, Titanic. You have the exclusive rights of this uh, uh, wreck site, so you know the region. There are, uh, as we're told, seven mechanisms on this submersible that would uh, bring it to the the surface voluntarily and involuntarily even if people are incapacitated there are ways to bring it to to the surface what in that region would stop these seven from from bringing it up if it hasn't already i mean it's a huge area that's a good question victor and, and that's something i'm trying to grapple with that if the sub didn't make it all the way to the bottom in an hour and 45 minutes i'm not sure they could it means they probably weren't caught by anything um, like a jagged edge or a cable so it would have been midwater and if something went wrong in midwater why didn't they drop uh, ballast so to speak the batteries the weights and then uh, bob up to the surface so it, it's a tough one and uh, that's why the uh, surface search from air is important, and the underwater search is important. Can we talk about the ongoing search right now? Because the Coast Guard has put a grid out showing the search area. They heard this sound, which helps give them data points, trying to sort of triangulate this. How hopeful are you this morning with 24 hours or so left of oxygen that they've got enough time now with a little more data about where this could be? Yeah, I, Poppy, when I first heard about the banging, uh, I said, oh, no, here we go again. You know, in the Malaysian air, we heard banging yeah. quite often, and it always turned out to be something different. Um, you know, I, I, if they are trying to tri- triangulate, and I'm sure they are, to find the, uh, where that noise is coming from, the next hope would be, they, and they probably will, start moving uh, ships and tools in that direction, whether it's identified or not, because the time is short. It's an, it takes a day or so just to get there Kit. from St. John's, so you pretty much yeah. have to work with the ships you got. Can I just ask if, if they do find it, let's hope they do in the next 24 hours, and we asked this to the head of the Coast Guard leading the search yesterday, what's the plan to bring it up to the surface if it's not already on the surface? If it actually is already two miles down, how do you get it up? Well, that's the, uh, well, I mean, there are companies that uh, do that, that can retrieve things. I know the Navy is sending one group out there that specializes in that. I know other groups that are private companies that are very good at that. Uh, but, you know, time is of the essence. So if it's found and they are, they do, can bring it up, 
they're going to have to work quickly. Quickly, you need the, the best and brightest minds on that. It's an engineering issue, uh, so they've got to identify really quickly what the problem is and get it out of there. Yeah, that Navy resource you're referencing, uh, spokesperson says they're sending away the flyaway deep ocean salvage system to help uh, in a potential uh, rescue mission. Of course, the first thing, though, they've got to find it before they uh, make any effort to bring it up, obviously. David Gallo, thank you very much. Uh, We will lean on your expertise a little later uh, in the show. Uh, Republicans are railing on the Hunter Biden plea deal. It just seems to me that if you are the leading opponent of the president, you're going to get jail time. But if you're the son of the president, you don't get any jail time. So is this really the sweetheart slap on the wrist that some Republicans are calling it? We'll break it down. Also, a federal judge puts Donald Trump's classified document trial on a fast track. A date has been set. It's this summer, but will it stay that way? This does not happen if Hunter's last name is anything other than Biden. If he's Hunter Smith, he's doing hard time. It is only because daddy is president that he gets this sweetheart deal with no jail time. We're going to fact check that. That is Senator Ted Cruz, one of many Republicans criticizing Hunter Biden's plea deal with the Justice Department. The president's son will plead guilty to federal tax charges. He has made a deal on a felony gun charge. It's expected that he will avoid prison time. Our Paula Reed joins us. Paula, good morning. It's not just Ted Cruz. It's so many Republican leaders in in both chambers really upset with this. They think it's not fair, uh, even though the lead prosecutor, David Weiss, was appointed by Trump and kept in place by Biden. That's right. It's not terribly surprising that they are criticizing this deal. Republican lawmakers have put a lot of time and energy into investigating Hunter Biden's personal and legal problems and making an effort to try to connect them to his father. But here, as you noted, this was a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney. They looked into Hunter Biden for about five years, looking at everything from possible foreign lobbying violations to money laundering. And in the end, the only charges that were brought as a result of this deal are two relatively minor tax charge and one charge is being diverted related to the purchase of a firearm. So in no way does this particular case from the Justice Department affirm the many accusations that the GOP has made about President Biden or his son. The DOJ's years-long investigation into Hunter Biden nearing a potential end. According to a letter filed by federal prosecutors, Hunter will plead guilty to two misdemeanor tax charges and strike a deal to resolve a separate felony gun charge. According to court documents, Hunter Biden owed at least $100,000 in federal taxes for 2017 and at least another $100,000 in 2018, but did not pay the IRS by the deadlines. His lawyer says he eventually paid the bill along with fees and penalties. On the tax charges, according to CNN sources, the Justice Department has agreed to recommend a sentence of probation as part of the deal. On the gun charge, prosecutors allege a 2018 incident in which Hunter Biden possessed a gun despite his drug addiction in violation of federal law. Biden has admitted to struggling with drug and alcohol addiction as early as 18 years of age. The deal allows him to enter a diversion program. Hunter has been in and out of rehab numerous times before. House Republicans seizing on the news. My first reaction is it continues to show 
two-tier system in America. If you are the president's leading political opponent, the DOJ tries to literally put you in jail and give you prison time. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. Republican presidential hopeful and former Vice President Mike Pence also weighed in. While I welcome these charges and the guilty plea, I have a sense that this will do very little to allay the concerns of millions of Americans, that we just simply don't have equal treatment uh, under the law. In an interview Tuesday, Biden's lawyer, Chris Clark, called the investigation dogged but fair. This was a five-year, very diligent investigation pursued by incredibly professional prosecutors, um, some of whom have been career prosecutors, one of whom at least was appointed by President Trump. And no one has ever said they're not competent, good, or diligent. The Hunter Biden investigation has been overseen by Trump-appointed U.S. Attorney David Weiss. In a letter, Weiss made it clear that he has ultimate authority over the criminal investigation. Asked about the DOJ deal on Tuesday, the president expressed support for his son. I'm very proud of my son. And we're still waiting for a date to be set for Hunter to go into court for his arraignment and to plead guilty. But I want to emphasize that everything about this deal is still subject to approval by a judge. Now, Poppy, you and I were talking during the commercial break about this deal and whether this is something that would happen to anyone else. Right. But yeah, based upon previous cases, while no one is exactly like Hunter Biden, for someone who failed to pay their taxes on time for the first time and for someone who failed to disclose their addiction on a form when purchasing a firearm, especially in the wake of last year's Supreme Court decision expanding Second Amendment rights, right. as well as another similar case working its way through the appeals court, this seems like a pretty average resolution. Diversion, which is what he's getting for the gun charge, that is a common alternative to incarceration, especially when drugs or alcohol are involved. Paula, thank you so much. Stand by. All right, let's bring in now CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig, also former assistant attorney for the Southern District of New York and former federal uh, and New Jersey state prosecutor. Um, you agree with that? Nothing sweet about this deal? I do. I mean, if you break it down this way, on the two tax charges, nothing at all unusual about this. He failed to pay his taxes for two years. He later repaid them. You can't get yourself out of a charge by paying. But giving someone a misdemeanor plea on those is completely within the norm. The gun crime is unusual in that virtually nobody gets charged with that particular crime to begin with, which is possessing a firearm while an addict. I was a prosecutor for 14 years. I charged dozens and dozens of federal firearms cases here in New York. I never even heard of that law. It is a law, but it's way down the list. So the very fact that Hunter Biden got charged with this on its own is unusual. On the other hand, it is unusual for someone to get charged with a federal firearms crime and to get pretrial diversion. But again, it's rare to see someone charged with this to begin with. So you can look at that one either way. Paul, one thing that I thought was interesting is that Hunter Biden's lawyers said essentially, and I'm paraphrasing here, we consider this pretty much done, right? Assuming the judge signs off. The, the actual Justice Department you know, memo or whatever you whatever you call it, you lawyers, uh, says that this is, quote, ongoing. And Jim Jordan is an example of a Republican in Congress who wants to know what ongoing actually means. What do you think it means? 
Well, I'm right there with Representative Jim Jordan. We do need to do some more reporting to understand exactly what that means. Because U.S. Attorney David Weiss, he put in his statement about this case uh, that the investigation is ongoing. Now, to many of us, that read uh, like boilerplate language. Of course, look, this entire deal is subject to approval by a judge. And then that file stays open, right, while he's on probation, while he completes his requirements for diversion. And if anything goes wrong, right, the case could, could potentially go on. There could be additional investigative mm -hmm. steps. So it seemed like boilerplate because it would be highly unusual if they were still looking at some sort of substantive matter to potentially bring charges to resolve a case with a plea deal and then bring those additional charges because you want to make sure that you have all your chips on the table when you're trying to negotiate a deal and pressure someone, right, so that they're up against all the potential charges. So at this point, based on talking to sources and experts, it appears that that's boilerplate. But look, we're, we're interested, just as Representative Jim Jordan is, in getting more answers and clarification from the U.S. attorney. And Paul, if, if, I, if I can add to what Paula said, DOJ prosecutors are trained from day one. You call everything ongoing until the case is signed, sealed, delivered. That is just a habit of DOJ. It's something they do to protect themselves. When we see the paperwork on this deal between the parties, I assure you it will say this is everything. This is based on everything that we as DOJ know as of this moment and there are no future charges forthcoming. You wouldn't enter a deal otherwise. Well, one uh, investigation we know that is ongoing without any ambiguity is the House GOP investigation For into sure. all of this. They want more, of course, documents from DOJ. Um, are they likely, more likely at the DOJ, to hand over documents now that this deal has been reached? So the fact that the case is going to be over soon, I think, makes it slightly less sensitive for purposes of turning over information to the public and Congress. But still... Count on DOJ to hold the line here. And the U.S. attorney in this case, David Weiss, has already written a letter to Jim Jordan saying, I'm not giving you anything because it's not the rule that once a case is pled out, well, come on in and we'll open up our files for the public. That would endanger D uh, DOJ's investigative methods. It would endanger witnesses. It would endanger the reputation and the fairness of the person being investigated. So DOJ has long held the line there. We do not let people into our investigative files. And I think if Congress pushes here, I think DOJ is going to hold the line and if, if necessary, take it to court. Thank you, Ellie. Thank you, Paula. Great reporting. Next hour, we're going to be joined with Congresswoman Nancy Mace. Her thoughts on this Biden plea deal that's ahead. We have uh, more on the significance of the banging sounds detected in the search for the Titan submersible. There are a lot of people wondering what the passengers might be going through right now. I mean, I know you probably had this conversation. If I were in that, mm -hmm. that submersible 13,000 feet down, what would I be doing? We'll get expert insight from a retired astronaut who has trained underwater. That's next. Also, another Supreme Court justice coming under scrutiny in a new report for going on a luxury vacation paid for by a Republican donor. Justice Samuel Alito responding in an op-ed before the reporting even came out defending himself. We'll get into all of it. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, there's new urgency and potentially hope in the race to find the missing Titan submersible and the five people on board. According to the Coast Guard, underwater noises have been detected, but further searches have not turned up anything so far. Now, this comes after an internal government memo said that banging noises were heard at 30-minute intervals on Tuesday. And as search crews continue their work, we're getting a better understanding of the expedition that was supposed to take place. According to those who have done this exact dive before, the Titan normally descends for about two hours before it reaches the Titanic shipwreck. 
That's a depth of 12,672 feet, or about two and a half miles down. The vessel then stays there for about four hours to give those on board time to survey the shipwreck. Then it's another two hours back up to the surface to complete the trip. But clearly, something went wrong on this most recent expedition. According to the Coast Guard, the Titan dove as it normally would, but one hour, 45 minutes in, contact was lost. We don't know exactly how far down or what happened after that moment. Let's bring in now Danny Olivas. He's a retired astronaut and expert accident investigator who has done uh, two stays on NASA's Aquarius underwater habitat and trained on underwater spacewalks. Uh, Danny, thank you for being with us. Let me start with, of course, the, the biggest news of the morning, the banging that's been heard. It's been picked up by Canadian planes, happening every 30 minutes. What's your take on that? Well, it's obviously it's a very optimistic sign. Uh, you take every little bit that you can at, at this stage of the game with uh, the oxygen supply running low and, and the fact that the vessel's been down for as long as it's been. Um, certainly any any signs of hope are, are very positive signs right now, but I think we also have to be very realistic with the, the, the seriousness of the, of the situation. Yeah, the Co U.S. Coast Guard uh, has not replicated that in hearing the, the, the tapping, the banging, uh, themselves. Uh, so now let's talk about what's happening inside this submersible. It's about the size of, uh, let's say, an extended cab uh, pickup truck. The inside, as it's been described by uh, CBS News, uh, the size of a, a minivan. Psychologically, physically, since you've trained underwater, what are they going through? Well, so there's probably uh, a lot of uh, challenges. It's a very stressful situation at those depths. They're not getting a lot of ambient light. So if they've lost the ability to generate their own light uh, in the vessel, um, it would be very dark. Um, if they lost the ability to generate light, it's po possible because they've had some power issues um, and their inability to communicate would also mean that they might have an inability to generate the necessary heat. It's going to be very cold at those depths as well. There's not a lot of uh, ambient uh, heat coming from uh, the surrounding environment. Um, the, uh, the air circulating inside the cabin uh, would be probably still. Uh, there probably wouldn't be any uh, cabin air circulation, uh, which could also pose a lot of you know, potential hazards with just uh, breathing the air. Um, the oxygen is important, but also CO2 generation by five people in a small confined vessel um, is going to be uh, very challenging and potentially uh, creating a, a poisonous environment for the, uh, for the crew members. You mentioned temperature, um, and this is something I've been thinking about over the last couple of days. At this point, how cold at that depth is it? Well, as, so I don't have the exact numbers, yeah. but what I will tell you is that if you don't have the ability to, to, to generate heat, um, as you've probably just been out in the ocean over a short period of time, eventually you can get yourself cold soaked even on a sunny day. Now you can imagine a depth where you don't have the sun, you know, beating down on you, providing you uh, some additional heating, um, it, it's going to get cold. And um, un unfortunately that the, 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 the thermal, um, the thermal generation, uh, the thermal conditioning is, is required to help people, people uh, remain in a, in a comfortable situation. All right. Danny Olivas, uh, thank you so much for giving us your insight, having trained in these underwater uh, vessels. All right. Summer is coming in hot, dangerously, dangerously hot. Thousands of people in Oklahoma and Texas and Louisiana with no electricity 
They're facing another triple-digit day. We'll have more on that next. Also, Donald Trump is still the by far the front-runner in the Republican primary for president, but his grip on the GOP might not be quite as tight after this indictment. We're going to show you some really fascinating new CNN polling ahead. It is the first official day of summer. Nearly 30 million people, though, are under severe heat alerts across the South, including Texas, Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Alabama. It could feel like 120 degrees outside in some of those places. Take a look at these heat records broken in Texas on Tuesday in Laredo, 114 degrees, destroying the old record of 109 degrees from 1996. In Abilene, it was 108, the old record in 1934, 106. And in McAllen, Three degrees higher than the 1980 record of 103. Derek Van Dam, our meteorologist, joins us from the CNN Weather Center. Yikes. Any respite in sight? <laughs> well, I guess if you consider 92 degrees relief from the heat wave, you could take it then. But you can see on our seven-day forecast for Houston, temperatures are going to soar right back into the hundreds, right into the early parts of the weekend. Now, people say, hey, look. Houston gets hot. It gets to 100 degrees. Well, the average first 100-degree day isn't until July 19th, and it's already reached 100 degrees twice just this week. Excessive heat warnings continue across the state. And as you mentioned before, the feels like temperature outside will feel like 115 to 120. And as long as this heat dome stays firmly in place across Mexico and Texas, the heat will remain for a better part of the next coming week. And in fact, there's science-backed research that says that human-caused climate change is making these heat waves that are in place five times more likely. Not only is today the first day of summer, it is also the Show Your Stripes Day. This is a graphic that meteorologists show to show the trends over the past 100 years that's meant to spread awareness about climate change using these warming stripes. And I want you to take note over the past, let's say, decade, how much we have actually warmed. Back to you. Derek, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you, Derek. Still ahead, new questions of ethics of the Supreme Court and new scrutiny this time. Justice Samuel Alito is the focus of the controversy. He responded to the allegations even before they went public. We'll discuss next. A federal judge in Donald Trump's classified documents trial sets a tentative start date of August 14th, but that could be delayed as pretrial motions come into play. Judge Eileen Cannon's moves are being watched very closely because she ruled in favor of the former president last year during the documents investigation. CNN's Caitlin Polanch joins us live now from Washington, D.C. So she says that she expects that there could be some movements here. How quickly do we expect this date to get pushed back? Well, Victor, that depends on the work to do before trial and when that takes place. So there is this date on the calendar now set by Judge Eileen Cannon in Florida for essentially the back half of August. That is when the trial is set now. Uh, and now there will be some discussions about that. That is very likely. It's very expected. And it's what typically happens in this part of the federal court in the Southern District of Florida. Both sides get to go to her and potentially ask uh, to delay things if they need to. And she even said that in her order yesterday. If there are complicated issues that arise in this case, 
or if there, is, if there are issues around the classified material being used in the case. There's 31 documents. Many of them uh, have some sort of classified cation markings on them that are charged as part of this case. And so there may be very complicated discussions that have to be had before a trial about how much classified information can be used at that trial, how that will be handled. So that could derail things, and it's very likely that that trial date will change. But of course, the Justice Department wants this to move fast. The special counsel said that the day of the indictment, that they wanted a speedy trial. And it is a defendant's right to have a trial that happens fast so that they can clear their name without being under a cloud of scrutiny for too long. And so we will just have to wait and see exactly how this plays out. Victor, there is no predicting court, especially when it comes to timelines. Understood. We'll know that uh, you'll be watching it closely. Caitlin Polans, thank you so much. Well, this new overnight, ProPublica publishing the latest in a series of investigations into Supreme Court ethics, reporting that in 2008, Justice Samuel Alito went on a luxury fishing trip to Alaska with Paul Singer, a man ProPublica describes as a, quote, hedge fund billionaire who has repeatedly asked the Supreme Court to rule in his favor in high-stakes business disputes. This report goes on to write, quote, the group flew on one of the lodge's bush planes to a waterfall in Katame National Park, which bears where bears snapped salmon from the water with their teeth. At night, the lodge's chefs served multi-course meals of Alaskan king crab legs or Kobe filet. On the last evening, a member of Alito's group bragged that the wine they were drinking cost $1,000 a bottle, one of the lodge's fishing guides told ProPublica. Hours before that piece was published, Alito wrote a pre-buttle in the Wall Street Journal saying the charges against him don't hold water. Joining us now, one of the reporters who broke this story, ProPublica journalist Justin Elliott. Good morning, Justin. Thank you very much for being with us. There's a lot to get to. And I just want to understand from you first, if you can explain uh, if it's believable that Justice Alito and his clerks didn't know the Singer connection to some of these big cases. I mean, one of them is a 2014 case, uh, one of Singer's funds, NML Capital versus Argentina. This had to do with sovereign wealth, et cetera, and sovereign debt that ultimately, you know, granted Singer over $2 billion. Is it believable that he really didn't know that Alito and his clerks didn't know Singer's connection to these cases? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to say what's in the justice's head. But uh, what I can tell you is that uh, Paul Singer's connection, um, you know, to this case was widely reported in mainstream media outlets. Um, You know, you might remember his, his hedge fund actually at one point tried to seize an Argentine Navy ship. Um, And this was an incident back in 2012 uh, that, you know, was covering the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Uh, It was was not a a secret that uh, this was Paul Singer's fund um, being sued by Argentina at the Supreme Court. So, Justin, uh, reading this uh, op-ed published by the Wall Street Journal, Justice Samuel Alito uh, writes that ProPublica misleads its readers. He talks about why he had no obligation to recuse uh, but some of the things that he uh, points out here, he, he writes that while you describe these lavish evenings, he says that, oh, well, these were family style meals. It, they were rustic uh, accommodations. Can you just paint a picture here of what the uh, justice was enjoying here in Alaska? Sure. And yeah, I acknowledge that, you know, luxury is in the eye of the beholder. But I think w- what's not contested here is that uh, Justice Alito flew to Alaska from the East Coast on a private jet uh, uh, provided by the hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer. Um, 
in Alaska, they stayed at uh, the King Salmon Lodge, which at the time cost more than $1,000 a night. Uh, you know, they serve uh, king crab. They are are flown around the area on bush planes to go fishing. We have pictures in the store. You can see the kind of fish they they caught. Um, and then they uh, flew back also on a, a private plane. Uh, you know, the, the cost of the wine that they drank uh, is in dispute here, but but pretty much everything else Justice Alito acknowledged. And I think the really important fact here is, is that when Paul Singer later had cases at the court, uh, Justice Alito did not recuse himself. Right. So Sing, uh, Alito writes in his op-ed that his interactions with Paul Singer over the decades have been extremely limited. He describes them as no more than a handful of occasions, all of which uh, consisted of brief and casual comments at events attended by large groups. On no occasion, writes Alito, have we discussed the activities of his business, and we have never talked about any cases or issues before the court. Does that square with your reporting? Yeah, you know, we talked to a series of ethics experts about when justices should recuse themselves. And what it came to, down to in this case is the fact that Justice Alito accepted these private jet flights from Paul Singer. And this is this is not cheap. I mean, uh, a one way uh, private jet flight on the type of jet we're talking about here uh, to Alaska um, could cost over one hundred thousand dollars to charter the plane. Uh, Justice Alito did not pay for it. He did not reimburse Paul Singer. That's not in dispute. Um, and so, uh, you know, the experts we spoke to said that that that's an expensive gift. And, you know, if if you were if you were going up against somebody in court and you found out that the person on the other side had uh, had been flying around the judge on a private jet, the, the basic question is, can that judge be but, fair? And that that's the situation. Well, you you write in this piece that it is potentially a, a violation of federal law that Alito did not make these disclosures. I know that the disclosure rules changed recently, Justin, and this is part of the defense that Justice Thomas gave as well. Were those rules in place that would have required Alito to disclose all of this when this happened in 2008, or have they since been updated? Yeah, so it gets a little bit into the weeds, but the the law at issue here uh, was actually passed after Watergate uh, in the kind of uh, era of good government reform. The law has not changed. Uh, all of the ethics lawyers we spoke to said that uh, getting a gift of a, a private jet flight should have been disclosed. Uh, Justice Alito is maintaining that the filing instructions uh, did not require him to disclose it. Um, but you know, I, I'll note that, as we say in the piece, um, we found examples of multiple other federal judges uh, disclosing gifts of private jet flights at the time. Really important reporting. Everyone should read it. Justin Elliott, thank you very much. A new development in the search for the missing submersible underwater banging has been detected. What this means for the passengers on board and will rescuers be able to reach them before they run out of air? More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, just after his top diplomat went to Beijing and tried to repair the fractured U.S.-China relationship, President Biden referred to China's president as a dictator. This is what Biden said at a fundraiser last night in San Francisco. Quote, the reason why Xi Jinping got very upset in terms of when I shot down that balloon with two boxcars full of spy equipment in it is he didn't know it was there. The president went on to say, quote, that's what a gr- what's a great embarrassment for dictators when they don't know what happened. Close quote. Our let signs is at the White House with more. I wonder if the White House is clarifying these comments this morning. 
Well, Poppy, so far the White House has not issued any reaction or clarification of the president's comments, but it does raise the question of whether these comments from President Biden will complicate and potentially upend some of the efforts that uh, were made over the weekend to try to ease tensions with China. Now, it's worth noting that President Biden, as recently as Saturday, had actually talked about the Chinese spy balloon incident in similar terms, saying it was an embarrassment for China's leadership. But he went one step further last night when he compared Chinese President Xi Jinping to dictators. Now, this came in an off-camera fundraiser, which tends to be a venue where we see the president speak a little bit more freely and candidly about various matters. So that is something uh, that we have clearly seen take place uh, in relation to his comments about China and this spy balloon incident. Now, China has already uh, slammed the, the White House this morning, calling those comments absurd and irresponsible and accusing President Biden of engaging in political provocation. So we will see whether over the course of the day, if the White House uh, decides to issue any type of clarification, any type of walk back. But this is already proving to be yet another wrinkle in an incredibly tense relationship between the U.S. and China. It certainly is. Arlette, thank you for the reporting at the White House. CNN This Morning continues right now. A complex search, now more complicated by time, which they're running out of. Crews searching for the submersible heard banging sounds every 30 minutes. Though it's unclear for how long. If they are alive and they're in there, they're going to be almost freezing temperatures. It's going to be dark. Right now, all of our efforts are focused on finding the sub. Biden has agreed to plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors, and he struck a deal to resolve a felony gun charge. Prosecutors are expected to recommend no prison time. This does not happen if Hunter's last name is anything other than Biden. It's false equivalence. It's all the things that we've seen from the Republicans doing what they can to protect Donald Trump. The federal indictment of former President Trump now has a trial date tentatively, August 14th. A new CNN poll shows former President Trump's support is slipping following his indictment. This race seems frozen, as best as I can tell. People are seeing how he is reacting to the indictment. This is the kind of thing that even looks bad to his base. John Durham will testify today on his scathing report on the investigation into Trump's alleged ties to Russia. He gave us the impression that some of the misconduct is individualized, but then some of it is systemic. We know that we have to learn from the mistakes made in these investigations to make sure that Americans can have confidence. The flow of migrants has slowed in the U.S., while a surge is taking place instead across the border in Mexico. Mexico City, which is very far from the border, has now become a border town, but in the center of Mexico. Being able to shelter and provide protection for migrants has never been an easy process. Shows you just how increasingly desperate and dangerous some of these journeys are. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us here on CNN this morning. As you can see, we have a lot to get to this hour, but we do begin with the desperate search this morning. Yeah, if you're just waking up, a huge development overnight in the search for that missing sub that vanished while diving on the Titanic shipwreck. Sonar picked up banging sounds every 30 minutes during the search yesterday. And of course, this is giving new hope that the five people on board might still be alive. That's according to an internal U.S. memo government memo, I should say. Now, the U.S. Coast Guard confirming that a Canadian surveillance plane detected noises underwater. Right now, they're racing to find out where those banging sounds are coming from. But as you know, time is quickly running out. It's estimated the passengers have maybe about 24 hours of breathable air left if the submersible is still intact. 
CNN senior national correspondent Miguel Marquez is in St. John's in Newfoundland, uh, live actually in front of a Coast Guard boat that is on standby to go out and help. Uh, the big news, the banging. What are we learning about the source potentially of, of the banging sounds? I think they are trying to figure that out, but I wanted to show you sort of what's happening. This is the Terry Fox. It's a Canadian Coast Guard ship right behind me, and we're going to keep the camera on that because they fired up the engines a short time ago. They pulled the ropes up. They're pulling them up right now, so it is about to head out there. That's been on standby. It's one of two Canadian Coast Guard ships on standby. We were at the Horizon Arctic ship that left overnight. It's about two hours out now, so there is a all-out scramble to get to this location to try to figure out uh, where those sounds were coming from, specifically those sounds for about a, a, over a four-hour period yesterday, they were able to pick up uh, banging every half hour or so. It is still not clear where that it was coming from. After that, they heard other sounds, but it did not sound like banging, they said. Uh, one concerning note is that they had to then move surface resources ships to the area where they were trying to co-locate co or zero in on where that banging was coming from, meaning they were possibly searching in the wrong place or had the ships in the wrong place to find, figure out where that banging was coming from. It is still unclear what that banging is, was, uh, but all on the U.S. side, the Canadian side from the air and on the surface, uh, Every entity is now in a desperate search uh, because if they are alive, they only have about maybe 24 hours left uh, of air. If they've lost power, is it extremely cold down there? Uh, and it's not clear that they would have enough food and water to survive uh, over four days as well. Uh, just a, a, a miserable uh, situation. And there is still hope that they can find these people alive. Back to you guys. Yeah, that, that banging every 30 minutes, uh, as we've learned, and assume that that's not occurring naturally. That's someone or something that's making that noise. Do we know when we'll get our next update to, to find out if the banging has continued into today? Uh, the Coast Guard has been doing regular updates uh, around one o'clock Eastern time. So we expect that we may have another uh, update uh, sometime midday. It is it's difficult to say, though. There are so many moving parts right now, uh, but we hope to get more information on it on an update later today. Miguel Marquez there in Newfoundland for us. Thanks so much. So joining us now is someone who knows one of the people missing on board that vessel, Bill Diamond. He is the CEO of SETI Institute, where Shazada Daywood is a trustee. Bill, thank you for being with us. I'm so sorry because I can't imagine what you're going through right now. Just hoping for the best. I wonder if you feel a little more hopeful this morning with news of that banging? Yes, well, I uh, like everyone, I, I woke to this news. Um, I'm actually here in Iceland, so a little, little earlier in the time zones. And uh, I was, um, I guess, elated on the one hand. On the other hand, uh, certainly aware that if if they are alive and um, and okay, you know the the fear and desperation must be just something uh, unimaginable. But um, it's certainly very hopeful news, and and uh, we we continue to to hope for an, uh, an amazing outcome here. Bill, have you been in, in touch with uh, the family? Because not only is Shazada on this vessel, so is his son Suleiman. Have you spoken with them? Do you know how they're doing? 
Well, I have not, only indirectly through one of our other uh, board members, who's a very close personal friend of the family's and associate, uh, Rima Khan, and, and Rima's been in touch with um, Shazaba's mother. It's, that's how I originally found out, uh, is that his mother had, uh, had shared this information that Shazada was on board um, and, and that his son Suleiman was with him. And I can only say that uh, in this um, notification, his mother was, was stoic, to say the very least, um, and, and of course hopeful like all of us. Um, I, I knew, of course, that uh, Shazada was going on this expedition. He'd been at our April board meeting in Mountain View, California, and was excitedly telling me about this, this trip. Um, so I, I knew this was coming, but uh, it was it was such a shock to hear that uh, the submersible had gone missing. And like you mentioned, the last time you saw him, he was telling you about what he and his son were going to going to go do, and how excited he was to to go on this journey. Yes. Did he mention the risks involved to you? Not really. I think um, you know, Shazada's, uh, you know, extremely intelligent individual, a very humble man. Um, you know, perpetually curious. I think that's the hmm. that's the driving force behind his wanting to go on this expedition. I think um, surely he was aware of the risks, um, and you know, was certainly aware that that undertaking uh, a, a, a manned dive to this kind of depth in a submersible is is a dangerous undertaking. But um, but he didn't really dwell on that or, or talk too much about it at the time. Yeah. There's a leap from perpetual curiosity to boarding this yeah. vessel and going 13,000 feet down to see the, the Titanic shipwreck. Had he done stuff like this before? Not that I'm aware of. Um, you know, Shasada is, is um, uh, a business executive and, and leader. He's a uh, very passionate about education, about about science and science literacy, um, uh, about equity and, and fairness. He's uh, again, as I mentioned, a very very humble man. He's not what I would consider, you know, one of these sports adventurists. Uh, he doesn't go on, you know, death defying missions or you know, ride motorcycles over cliffs or any of these sorts of things. Parachuting, scuba diving, to the best of my knowledge. So I, I've never thought of him as as a daredevil in any sense. Um, uh, again, you know, somebody who I think understanding the risks would be willing to do something that some might consider extreme uh, to sort of satisfy those curiosity um, callings, but, uh, but not otherwise, you know, any kind of a daredevil. Well, Bill Diamond, uh, we are right there hoping with you today. Thank you very much for helping us learn a little bit more about your friend. Thank you, Bill. Yes, thank you very much. We all hope for the best. Yeah. New reaction this morning to Hunter Biden's deal with the Justice Department. His lawyer says the investigation is resolved. Republicans do not agree. Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace joins us to discuss. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This morning, a growing number of Republicans are slamming Hunter Biden's plea deal with the DOJ. According to court documents, the president's son has agreed to plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors for failing to pay his taxes in time, on time in 2017 and 2018. As part of the plea agreement, the DOJ will recommend probation. A judge, however, will have the final say on any sentence. Now, Hunter Biden will also see a felony gun charge dismissed if he meets certain conditions. Biden's attorney released a statement yesterday that read in part, quote, I know Hunter believes it is important to take responsibility for these mistakes he made during a period of turmoil and addiction in his life. 
He looks forward to continuing his recovery and moving forward. President Biden was asked about his son yesterday. Watch this. I'm very proud of my son. House Republicans, meanwhile, were quick to criticize the plea deal. If you are the president's leading political opponent, the DOJ tries to literally put you in jail and give you prison time. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. All right, joining us now to break down the agreement is CNN legal analyst Ellie Honig, a former assistant attorney for the Southern District of New York and a former federal and New Jersey state prosecutor. Ellie, first, let's just start with the charges. Walk us through them and what happens next. Sure, Victor. It took us five years, but we finally have a resolution on the Hunter Biden case. First of all, Hunter Biden is going to plead guilty to two counts of willful failure to pay income taxes for the year 2017 and 18. The allegation is that each year he made about $1.5 million in income and he owed but did not pay in excess of $100,000. Doesn't specify how far in excess, but in excess. This word is really important, willful. That means he did it on purpose. He knew he was supposed to pay his taxes. He knew he did not pay them. It was not some sort of accident. Now, that's a misdemeanor, meaning the max penalty is one year, but the parties have agreed that the appropriate sentence here should be probation, which is absolutely normal for a misdemeanor. It's rare to see a misdemeanor result in anything more than probation. Second of all, there's an agreement that Hunter Biden, he's going to be charged with possession of a firearm by an addicted person, a fairly rarely charged firearms law. If he abides by certain conditions, if he stays clean, if he does not get arrested again, then this case will be dismissed without him ever having to plead to it. It's called pretrial diversion. Now, what happens next? DOJ and Hunter Biden are going to have to go into federal court down in Delaware. Biden will enter his guilty plea in front of a judge to the tax counts. He will say, yes, I failed to pay my taxes. Yes, this was a crime. Yes, I am guilty. Important to note, it is up to the judge. Even though the parties have agreed the sentence here should be probation, it's going to be up to the judge. Now, virtually always when the parties have an agreement, a judge will abide by that. But judges can depart. So I think it's very, very likely the judge sticks with the agreement, sentences Hunter Biden eventually to probation. Slim chance. But as his attorney says, this is likely resolved once we get to that point. Exactly. All right. Let's talk about the U.S. attorney here. And and also, let's talk more about timeline and how we got here. Really important to understand who the players are. David Weiss is the U.S. attorney for Delaware. He's a longtime federal prosecutor, has served in administrations of both political parties. In 2018, Donald Trump nominated him to be the U.S. attorney. He got through the Senate, by the way, with support of both of Delaware's Democratic Party U.S. senators. And then when Joe Biden took over in 2021, usually a president gets rid of all the U.S. attorneys or they resign. He left David Weiss in place because of this case. He didn't Mm -hmm. want there to be any appearance of impropriety. Uh, David Weiss got a letter from Jim Jordan saying, we want your testimony. And David Weiss fired back. And he said, he said, no, thank you. I respectfully decline. And he made a point of saying, I've been granted ultimate authority over this matter, including responsibility for deciding where, when and whether to file charges. What David Weiss is saying is this was my decision, not Merrick Garland's, not the brass at DOJ. The timeline is so important here, Victor. Like we said, this started five years ago in 2018, 2021. Two and change years later, Biden comes in and he leaves Weiss in office. But the thing I want to point out here is DOJ under the Trump administration, under a Republican administration, had two plus years where they did not bring any charges. They did not bring any more serious charges than Hunter Biden has now seen. So keep that in mind 
when you hear complaints from certain Republican congressmen. The White House has not suggested that this could happen, but potential pardon. What do you know? What's the history? So certainly Joe Biden has the constitutional power to issue a pardon here. I wouldn't bet on him doing it before the sure, election, sure. if ever. There actually is a little bit of interesting history on familial presidential pardons. Bill Clinton, on his last day in office, issued a pardon to his half-brother, Roger Clinton, who many years before had been convicted of drug crimes. Donald Trump also issued a pardon on his final day to Jared Kushner's father, mm -hmm. Charles Kushner, who had been convicted in New Jersey of witness retaliation and tax crimes. So there is some precedent in history here for issuing family pardons. They don't go down well in history, but they have happened. Ellie, with all the context. Ellie, thanks. Thanks, Victor. Poppy? I appreciate it. South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace tweeted yesterday, quote, Hunter Biden gets a slap on the wrist for federal tax and gun crimes, but they want to give Donald Trump a death sentence. Well, she joins me now. Good morning, Congresswoman. Why does this deal not pass muster in your view? Good morning. Well, it really is just a slap on the wrist, and it came one week after the indictment of, of Donald Trump over the documents. Um, for years now, the FBI and the DOJ have known about other crimes potentially committed by Hunter Biden, other Biden family members. And today I have more questions than I have answers. I would like to know if those things are being investigated. I've seen suspicious activity reports, bank records, 1023 forms, unclassified 1023 forms that were redacted by the government on alleged crimes by the Biden family. And I believe that the American people should be able to have access to all that information, know what's really been going on. Because a lot of people, if they get smacked with a gun charge, they don't get to walk away like Hunter Biden. There's mm -hmm. a lot more here well, to this story, I believe, than meets the eye. Uh, Hunter, Hunter Biden fully repaid the back taxes plus a fine. And, and it's not really rare for someone uh, to have a deal like this in terms of a federal gun charge if they're not a convicted felon or have not used the gun in commission of a violent crime. Republican Senator Mitt Romney said yesterday, quote, I don't know that there's any evidence that suggests this is out of character with under other individuals who come under similar infractions. Is he wrong? Well, there are some examples on social media yesterday of others who've had federal gun crime charges and had to had, had more significant, I guess, repercussions for that. But at Ooh. the end of the day, this is the president's son. And on the House Oversight Committee, we were investigating other allegations. And those are the things that I want the American people to know about. The documents that we've seen on oversight of alleged bribery scheme, uh, racketeering potentially, money laundering. There's a lot of things that are going on with this family you, that, that is more to this story than what we're hearing about today. Do you believe that tax avoidance and this gun charge are on par with allegations that the former president of the United States obstructed justice and willfully retained very sensitive state secrets? Well, um, in this charge with regards to Hunter Biden, there's a lot more to the story with Joe Biden as vice president, as, as, Senator, as Senator Joe Biden even had classified documents that he sat around in boxes in his garage for years. Hillary Clinton had a private server in a bathroom. Staff used a hammer on devices like phones and uh, iPads, et cetera, to destroy evidence. That was obstruction. She was never charged with anything. So whatever the standard is for current presidents, past senators, past vice presidents, even if your last name is Donald Trump, the standard should be the same. Same for everybody. But I'm asking you board. specifically, Congresswoman, about the statement I just read at the top of the interview mm -hmm. that you basically said what they're trying to do to Trump is not fair compared to what the, the deal that they gave Biden. Here, putting it another oh, way, totally you said fair. that President Biden yeah. is using, quote, his DOJ to put his top 
political rival in jail. Former Attorney General Bill Barr and the Trump administration would disagree with you. He writes in this op-ed this week, quote, if true, many key facts come from Trump's own lawyers. He writes of the indictment, this was brazen criminal conduct that cannot be justified in any way. It is time that Republicans come to grips with the hard truths. Trump's indictment is not a result of unfair government persecution. The effort to present Trump as a victim in the Mar-a-Lago documents affair is cynical political propaganda. Is he wrong? I, 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 I do love some Bill Barr and agree with him on many issues, but this is one where I, I absolutely disagree with. The American people are going to see this as something completely different. Now, I think the conversation about how we handle classified information as current and former presidents, vice presidents, senators, secretaries of state, that is a very valid conversation to have. And if we're going to have that conversation, we have to talk about Hillary Clinton and how she handled classified information as well, because that's why the American people see that there are two tiers of of justice well, in me, this country. Let me ask that if you're a Republican, your last name is Trump. It's different. I mean, he's facing hundreds of years in jail. That is a death sentence for okay, anybody look, in this you know, country. I, I think it seems a bit over overdone here. I, I think you know that that is not you're adding up all of the counts. If you were convicted on all of the counts, hundreds many legal experts have said, including in lawfare, that that is not how it how it would play out in terms of sentencing. But look, you said on June 9th on this network to my colleague, I'm still keeping my powder dry mm -hmm. and watching the Republican primary process when asked about if you would support Trump uh, for president again. I think it's interesting you point out how the American people feel. We have brand new CNN polling this morning that shows us how the American people feel. And there's a softening support of Trump. He still leads, but it's softening after the indictment. And what's really interesting is that a majority of Americans and a significant majority of independents both approve of the indictment and think Trump should end his campaign as a result of that. That is not just Democrats, it's a majority of independents. What's your reaction to those numbers? Right. Well, I'd say the majority of Democrats, independents and Republicans are in that like 71 percent of Americans don't want Joe Biden to run because they think he think he's too old and too senile. So I think that it cuts both ways. But I do believe that. And I come from a very purple district. I have yeah. a lot of independent voters, a lot of independent types of people that have supported me over the years. And I will tell you that when the second indictment came down, there was a lot of frustration because they felt like there was a double standard in the way that he was treated. And these are people that are not Trump's supporters. They wanted to stay out of the 2024 election, who are now going to jump on board and contribute and, and try to support his campaign. A lot of people believe that he will win the nomination no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm seeing some of that support change. And I'm someone who I'm, I'm on the sidelines. I'm going to keep my powder dry for 24 and watch what happens. Mm -hmm. I come from a very purple district in the low country of South Carolina. It's not like the rest of the state. But South Carolina is going to be a very important state in this election in 24. So we're just going to keep an eye out and keep can, watch. Can I just ask you then, would you support Trump as mm -hmm. a Republican nominee if he is convicted on these charges? Or is that a line for you? Uh, that's a load. That's a loaded question this early in the morning. Come on, it's uh, seven you know, thirty, which is not early for working it's totally, mothers, as, it's early. as you well know. <laughs> I haven't had my coffee yet today. Come on, <laughs> would you? Is that a line? If, if the former president is convicted of these charges that's not or a reality any of them. yet. That's not a reality day. I'm not willing to entertain it today, right. but thank you. I want to ask you also, we were going to have you on yesterday, and I'm glad you could join us this morning to talk about AI because this is a big focus of yours as well. And I do want to ask you about this hearing that you're holding tomorrow mm -hmm. on AI to examine what the federal government is doing. We just saw the president, Joe Biden, 
in California and San Francisco focusing on AI, on the risks and the benefits. Is this an area where you think you can work with the White House? Oh, 100%. I have a history of working on cybersecurity issues with the White House. In fact, my colleague across the aisle, Ro Khanna from California, and I have done several pieces of legislation, some of which has been signed into law by President Biden. And on oversight committees, cybersecurity is a place where we've actually had folks on both sides of the aisle be able to find some agreement where you can get the squad and the Freedom Caucus together. You know it's a good issue. <laughs> but look, I mean, we want to make sure that our country, that our defenses are ahead of China and Russia and other adversaries. We don't want to hit pause on technology innovation and development here. We want to make sure that we're protecting consumer data, government data, and also headed into 2024. I think we want to make sure that information, that people know the source of their information, mm -hmm. that they know that if, if this video has been manipulated or not. I mean, there's just a lot of things that we need to address very quickly, sooner rather than later, which is why you're seeing me on oversight tackle AI and cybersecurity absolutely whenever we can. Well, I think of the American people are very glad to hear this is somewhere where there's going to be a lot of bipartisan work. Congresswoman Nancy Mace, thank you. Might be the only place. Thank you. <laughs> Let's hope not. Thanks, Victor. Bud Light says it is coming back after it was dethroned as America's top-selling beer. How it plans to get back on top. Also, the New York Times reports that industry leaders warned the company behind that missing submersible years ago about using a, quote, experimental approach that could result in catastrophic problems. What we know about the regulations as this urgent search continues. Well, as searchers try to find the missing submersible that may be nearly 13,000 feet below the surface, we want to give you some perspective on how deep underwater this vessel may be. Now, consider this. The Statue of Liberty is 305 feet tall. The Eiffel Tower, just under 1,000 feet tall. The world's tallest building, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai, is more than 2,700 feet tall. The Grand Canyon rises up to 6,000 feet tall. If you double the height of the Grand Canyon and add a little more, that's how deep underwater this missing sub may be. Let's bring in Gabe Cohen, uh, who was on board the submersible in 2018. So, Gabe, uh, let's talk about regulation. The New York Times obtained a letter from industry experts expressing their concerns with the Titan. Tell us about these letters. Yeah, so, Victor, more than three dozen specialists like oceanographers, deep sea explorers, all of them signed this letter back in 2018, warning about potentially catastrophic problems with this vessel, with the Titan, and then sent it to OceanGate CEO, according to this uh, New York Times report. They expressed concern, all these specialists, uh, over what they referred to as the company's experimental approach to the vessel and its Titanic expedition, saying that it could have negative outcomes from minor to catastrophic that would have serious consequences for everyone in the industry. And they were specifically concerned about OceanGate failing to follow a certain maritime risk assessment certification, basically saying uh, OceanGate's marketing material was advertising that the Titan would meet or exceed those safety standards. And yet uh, the company didn't seem to be following any of the rules to ensure that. Uh, they write, quote, your representation is at minimum misleading to the public and breaches an industry 
industry-wide professional code of conduct we all endeavor to uphold. Essentially, Victor, uh, they wanted OceanGate to follow the same standards as other vessels, especially ones uh, that are carrying passengers, but they didn't seem to get their wish. In 2019, OceanGate actually put up a blog post addressing this issue, explaining why uh, the Titan vessel isn't classed. And they basically said that that process would slow innovation and it could take years to get certified. And they said uh, they've used those standards before as a a benchmark for at least one of their prior vessels. But uh, essentially, they believe classing by itself, classing a vessel is not sufficient to ensure safety because it doesn't actually assess operational factors to make sure that the vessel is being operated properly. Gabe, those concerns are from people outside the company, but there have been concerns raised by employees of OceanGate in the past, too, right? Yeah, Victor, that's right. We have now learned that two former OceanGate employees uh, separately brought up similar safety concerns uh, about the Titan, about its structure, specifically about uh, the thickness of the Titan's hull uh, when they were employed by the company years ago. One of them uh, raised concerns in a counter lawsuit against the company, basically saying OceanGate uh, hadn't performed non-destructive testing on the vessel's hull uh, to test its structure, make sure it was sound. And he claims that when he raised those concerns, uh, he was essentially told that no equipment existed to actually perform that type of test. Uh, now, we know that lawsuit was eventually settled and dismissed, and, and filings indicate that there was some additional testing after that employee's uh, time at the company, but it's unclear if those concerns were actually addressed. Now, we know another former employee uh, speaking to CNN on the condition of anonymity, said that he became concerned when the Titan's carbon fiber hull actually arrived at the company. It was five inches thick, he said, when the company had told him it would be seven inches thick. And he he said he told Stockton Rush, the CEO, who's one of the five people missing right now, uh, that the company OceanGate could be violating a U.S. law uh, relating to Coast Guard inspections with all of this. But uh, he says the OceanGate CEO dismissed it. uh, So then that employee resigned. Victor. All right. Dave Cohen uh, doing some digging there. Thank you for the reporting. News CNN polling shows support could be softening for Donald Trump after his federal indictment. We will break down those numbers. Plus how a potential August trial date the same month as, by the way, the first Republican presidential debate, how this could all impact the race for the White House. More CNN this morning to come after the break. New CNN poll numbers reveal some vulnerabilities, some for the GOP presidential frontrunner in the race, Donald Trump. The post-federal indictment snapshot of the Republican race shows, yes, he's still way in the lead, but support is softening a bit. Let's talk about all of these numbers because they're really, really interesting with our political director, David Chalian. I, I, I love this poll simply because it has me interested, but then confused a little later on. So we'll <laughs> go through all of it. Let's start with the warning signs for Trump. Yes. And as you noted, we're seeing this slight softening in support among Republicans, Poppy. Um, Take a look here. If you just look at the overall horse race right now, Donald Trump, as you noted, still the clear front runner for the nomination. He's got a 21 percentage point lead, 47 percent to DeSantis, 26 percent, everyone else in single digits. But look here. He's down six points 
from where he was in May. He was at 53%. So that's one thing to watch. We ask people your favorable, unfavorable opinion. Uh, do you feel more favorably to Trump or more unfavorably? Among Republican and Republican-leaning voters, that's what you're looking at here, his favorable number is down 10 points from 77 to 67% uh, since May, and his unfavorables are up nine points. We also ask Republicans and Republican-leaners would you even never consider Donald Trump at all? Or do you just rule him out as an option, right? 16% said that in May. Now that's up to 23% who say that now. So it is some softening, but still the clear front runner. So what does this mean for the GOP more broadly? Well, Victor, it means it's a party at odds with itself because it doesn't know uh, what is the best option to defeat Joe Biden in 2024. We asked Republican and Republican leaders, it splits evenly. About 51% say Donald Trump at the head of the ticket is their best chance in 24. 49% of Republicans say someone else. Okay, this is where I get confused but fascinated. What are Americans saying about the Trump indictment? So everything we were just talking about was in the context of the Republican primary, the Republican uh, electorate. This is now more broadly looking at Americans overall. And it is not good news for Donald Trump. 61% overall approve of the federal indictment, obviously nearly all Democrats. But look here, guys, two-thirds of independents approve of the federal indictment. Yes, Americans do see politics at play here, so that is one of Donald Trump's uh, sort of selling points that he's trying to convince Americans that it's all politics. Seven in 10 Americans say some politics or perhaps politics plays a major role. Again, two-thirds of independents uh, believe that as well. But look at this number, 59% of Americans, six in 10, want Donald Trump to end his campaign now after this indictment. Yeah. Nearly all Democrats, again, 62% of independents say Trump should end his campaign now. And if this comes to just Biden versus Trump, what then? This is the campaign no American wants, according to all the polling out there, to hmm. see a repeat here. And look at this. You see they are equally unpopular. Joe Biden's favorable and unfavorables in this poll, 32% favorable, 56% unfavorable among <laughs> Americans. Look at Donald Trump. It's roughly the same, 33% favorable, 59% unfavorable. These are two unpopular folks who may end up uh, taking each other on for a second time in 2024. Buckle up. Less David. confused, more excited. I'm just fascinated by it. I'm always excited when David Chalian gets up early. It's always good to have him so. on. Thank, Thank you, David. All right, let's bring in now CNN political commentator and host of You Decide podcast, Errol Lewis, and Time senior correspondent, Charlotte Alter. She's also the author of The Ones We've Been Waiting For, How a New Generation of Leaders Will Transform America. Errol, let me start with you. So former President Trump is now not 27 points ahead. He's 21 points ahead um, should he be terribly worried about this? He should be a little bit worried uh, because uh, there are more and more people jumping into the race. And what that says, among other things, you know, you have the mayor of Miami and all these other people coming forward. What it's saying is that the political class who think they have some donors and some base and some rationale and some ability to campaign are all saying, we don't think he's invincible. We don't think he's necessarily going to be around. We either expect something cataclysmic, like a conviction to maybe disqualify him, or we just don't think he's going to make it for one reason or another. And so that should be of some concern to Donald Trump. You know, the conventional wisdom, which we've talked about before, is that a big crowded race will help him. It makes it look more like 2015, 2016, and he can squeak through with his uh, relatively small uh, plurality of, of support. But 
I don't know if that's necessarily the case. When you've got people pounding at you every single day, that's not going to be a good place and, to Donald And Trump. if there's a trial before the, if he makes it to the general and there's a trial before the general and there's a conviction, that also really changes the equation for, for people. What about independents? That's what I find most fascinating, Charlotte, about the polling, is that a majority of independents both support the indictment and think it means Trump should drop out of the race. He needs independence. Yeah, I mean, he and the GOP need independence. They can't win a national race without independence. And then another number that came up in this poll that I thought was really interesting um, was the roughly a quarter of Republican and Republican-leaning voters who said that they would not support Donald Trump under, under any circumstances. That is really bad news for Trump. I don't know that those are necessarily Biden voters in a general election, but they could easily just stay home. And he cannot win a national election without those voters. Yeah. Ron DeSantis didn't move a point from May to, to the, the most recent poll. Any of those six points, he didn't pick up. That's right. I mean, the, the, looking at the numbers, it looks like all of these newcomers who are jumping into the race on an almost weekly basis, new people getting in, Chris Christie and so forth, yeah. they're taking from Ron DeSantis, not necessarily from, from Donald Trump. And that's very bad news for, for Ron DeSantis. I mean, he's tried to position himself as the alternative to Donald Trump, but that's not necessarily not what voters a see. Alternative. <laughs> not right. a alternative. Let's talk about this trial, because the fact that Judge Cannon has set a trial date for August 14th, obviously that can move. But doesn't it tell us that she would like to see this go pretty quickly, which is what the special counsel, Jack Smith's team, wants. Yeah, I mean, it really seems to indicate that she is leaning towards getting this done as soon as possible. You know, we also have to be careful. There's a lot of other litigation and stuff that will slow down this process. It could be that this is not actually an August trial, but it does seem to indicate that she is trying to make this trial happen as soon as possible, likely before the election next year. And that's not great news for Trump. Errol, what does the uh, Hunter Biden deal pretend for the 2024 race? I mean, look, it, it, it brings up the big elephant in the room, which is that Republicans are closing in on 20 years in which they could not win the popular vote in this country. Uh, what people actually care about, every poll that we've looked at tells you what common sense would tell you. People care about prices. Uh, they care about their kids' tuition. They care about their family and their future and the economy. Uh, and the Hunter Biden fixation that led to the first impeachment of Donald Trump, that seems to be the only issue that any Republican candidate wants to talk about right now, it tells you that the, the, they don't have a hold on it. They haven't figured out how to talk to the country. And so they've got this strictly political partisan fixation that they think is going to carry them back to the White House. It's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a really difficult thing to watch because the country has really important issues that we should be talking about, not Hunter Biden's laptop. All right. Errol Lewis, Charlotte Alter. Thank you both. Thanks, guys. A new survey shows doctors are concerned about harmful effects from the Supreme Court's ruling overturning Roe versus Wade. We'll explain why they're worried ahead. And just in to CNN, new details about the ban accused of murdering four University of Idaho students last fall. What court documents just revealed about the DNA that was found on the knife from the crime scene. So this is interesting. We told you last week about the significant drop-off in Bud Light sales. Well, the parent company, Anheuser-Busch, those executives say they want to put Bud Light back on top. They say they've learned some lessons in all of this. Last month, of course, Bud Light lost its title as America's top-selling beer. There was backlash over a partnership with the transgender influencer. Christine Romans joins us now. 
One little customized can on an Instagram post has sparked this huge uh, boycott and controversy for Bud Light. So we're hearing from the top marketing executive of the company at the Can Lion Festival. And, and this is what he said. When things get divisive and controversial so easily, I think it's an important wake-up call to all of us marketers to be very humble. He goes on to say it's tough to see all the controversy and divisiveness, specifically in the United States with other companies and brands as well. And he said they've got to be open to learning and listening to their customers. He said they're going to be back on top. He's optimistic that things are going to come back. It's coming back, he said, but they're going to be going around the country listening to their customers. Does that mean they wouldn't do that again? It's I mean, that, that was a sign of inclusion. Exactly. And they're not apologizing for it and not saying that they're going to, you know, revert from inclusion, but saying that they found themselves humbled in the middle of this brouhaha. But watching the sales numbers, too, you know, uh, the king of beer, uh, Bud Light, lost that place to Modelo's. And I think it's interesting. There are other trends going on in the beer market, too. The boycott will likely fade. Uh, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise how strong it was. And beer, you know, beer sales for Bud Light were down like 24% right. in the period. It was a real... It was a real uh, clear um, rejection of that brand. Um, but there's also, you know, Modelo's had better at marketing, quite frankly, around Sanco de Mayo. And people are drinking different things now. They're drinking craft beers. They're drinking. So there's a lot going on in this business, Fair. the light beer business. But watch this space. Um, the company humbled. And I think a lot of C-suites are worried about finding themselves in this situation, criticized on the right, but also criticized on the left for being wishy-washy. Yeah. Well, know what you stand for. I yeah. think it's a lesson, Christine. Stand for it. <laughs> Thank you. And stand for it. Thank you very much, Victor. For the first time, a key panel of U.S. medical experts is recommending all adults under 65 be screened for anxiety disorders. The move follows a recent recommendation to screen kids uh, down to age eight for anxiety disorders as well. CNN medical correspondent Meg Terrell is with us now. All right, tell us about these new recommendations. Yeah, so this is a finalization of a recommendation from the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force. And essentially, they're saying all adults under 65 should now be screened for anxiety, regardless of whether they show symptoms. Uh, they put out this report uh, yesterday. They said there's not enough evidence to say that older adults should be screened for anxiety right now and that more research needs to be done. Interestingly, the research does show that sort of in the older populations, anxiety is less. That's the lowest uh, group that sees anxiety levels, but they could have it as well. Uh, and so anxiety disorders, they're characterized by disproportionate uh, and constant fear over everyday events, which can be accompanied by behavioral issues like restlessness, fatigue, trouble concentrating, irritability, trouble sleeping. Uh, so these are real problems. And we saw them really spike during the pandemic. In the first year, in 2020, we saw both rates of depression and anxiety globally going up by more than 25 percent. So it's not just the pandemic, but this is something that's exacerbated these problems and we need more attention paid to them. Also, this Morning, a new survey shows that a majority of OBGYNs across the country are worried about negative health implications for, uh, for, for women from the Dobbs decision overturning Roe versus Wade. Why is that? Yeah, you know, so this is something that people worried about when this happened, that there could be just this ambiguity in understanding how to provide care under the law, uh, and also that the actual legal restrictions could lead uh, people not to be able to provide the care that they need. And this is what this KFF survey is showing. More than two-thirds of these OBGYNs surveyed uh, said that it has worsened their ability to provide a pregnancy-related emergency care. Uh, 24% nationally say they've had patients unable to obtain an abortion that they sought. 20% 
sense, they've had constraints on their ability to provide care for miscarriages or other pregnancy-related emergencies, and that's even higher because in Because some states. of the same drugs are used. Exactly, and that there's just this sort of ambiguity legally around this. And 36% say this has worsened their ability to practice within the standard of care. Mm. So a, a year on, we're seeing these effects. Yeah, certainly. Meg Terrell, thanks. Thank you. Appreciate it. A sound, a sound of hope in the search for that missing submersible with five people on board. Sonar picking up banging sounds. That's according to an internal government memo. We're live right near the scene of the search. It is the top of the hour. Good morning, everyone. Sorry, that was you. No, I'm just so glad you're you here with me. You don't have to spill it in here. Thank you for being with me the past few days. This is, is my buddy, Victor Blackwell. We are covering a lot this morning on CNN This Morning, and there's some hope. That's where we begin with a yes. little bit of hope this morning. In that desperate search for a missing sub near the Titanic shipwreck, the sound of banging has been detected underwater, and the noise apparently repeated every 30 minutes. Plus, Republican leaders are accusing the Justice Department of giving Hunter Biden a sweetheart plea deal. We'll take a look at the facts. Also, millions of Americans under extreme heat alerts as the summer officially kicks off. Today, we're going to take it live to South Texas, where attempts are expected to keep breaking records. This hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. New overnight, a potential sign of life as rescuers race to find the submersible that vanished while diving on the Titanic shipwreck. Sonar has picked up banging sounds in the search area, and those were repeated, those sounds, every 30 minutes. That is according to an internal U.S. government memo. Well, this morning, the Coast Guard says it's not clear what the source of the sound was, and Navy experts are analyzing it. It is estimated that the five passengers on board would have only about a day left of breathable air at this point, if that submersible is still intact. Here's what a former passenger on board that same missing sub said about what it's like inside. As you start to descend through the water column, it's, it is an amazing journey to see the light very quickly disappear. And within five, 10 minutes, you're in pitch dark, complete dark, uh, you know, and you have the lights from the sub, right? You have the lights from the sub submersible that you can see outside and in internally. But without those, your light is gone at any depth below a couple hundred meters. So, uh, so anyone in that would be in complete darkness uh, if they didn't have power uh, still at this point. We'll take a look. This is new video from this morning of another rescue vessel heading out to join the search and rescue operations after the U.S. Air Force flew special equipment into Newfoundland. CNN Senior National Correspondent Miguel Marquez joins us in St. John's, Newfoundland. Miguel, good morning to you. Can you talk to us about what exactly the Coast Guard is doing this morning? Uh, it is all hands on deck. They, it was a Coast Guard ship from the Canadian Coast Guard that just shipped out now. There was the uh, Horizon Arctic, that's a private ship uh, that left overnight. Both of them carrying gear, both of them heading out to the search area now uh, in the hope that they can uh, rescue the individuals who may be, you know, as far as two miles down uh, and, and looking for help. With regard to the sounds that were heard, uh, this was over about a four-hour period. There was a, a, a P-8, a Poseidon, a sub-hunter that had dropped buoys into the ocean. It heard banging. Every 30 minutes, they were hearing a regular banging. Uh, and, 
And then four hours later, they dropped more buoys in. They heard more banging. They sent remote-operated vehicles down to the location where they thought that sound was coming from, but were not able to find anything. They're now moving surface ships uh, around the area to see if they can either hear uh, other sounds. They heard other sounds after that initial period yesterday of about four or five hours or so, uh, but it wasn't banging. So they're not clear. It's not clear what they were hearing uh, down there at that point. Uh, but just an excruciating wait, a, a, an, an absolute uh, concern here for what, if they are alive, what they must be going uh, through down there in the cold and the dark and just hoping against hope that they are rescued. Back to you. Let's talk more about uh, the search um, and the resources that are involved. You talked about that one ship that was en route searching from the air on the surface of the water, below the water. Miguel, what do you know? Uh, so there were three U.S. military C-17s that landed here in St. John's in Newfoundland yesterday. That gear was taken offloaded from those planes, put onto the, we believe, the Arctic, uh, the Horizon Arctic that went out about two hours ago. Uh, and there is everything from remote-operated vehicles, uh, submersibles that can that can dive down that deep, uh, gear that if they find it, they can then winch it up uh, if necessary, uh, and even uh, remote op or uh, uh, decompression chambers so that if individuals come up and they are suffering the effects of decompression, they can put them in a chamber and hopefully save them. Everything that they can do, it seems, is being done. Back to you. Miguel Marquez for us there in Newfoundland. Thank you, Miguel. And as Miguel was just saying, this is a huge multinational search and rescue operation. It's in the air. American and Canadian surveillance planes are flying overhead. The Canadian P-3 drops torpedo-like sonar buoys into the water on the surface. You've got five vessels from the United States, Canada, and France. They've all been deployed and searching underwater. France's Victor 6000 deep-sea robot that can dive deeper than the Titanic wreckage. That's key, right? Because we're talking about 13,000-plus feet here. But the ship delivering it is only expected to arrive later tonight. And we know, Victor, time is of the essence. Absolutely. Only 24 hours about of uh, breathable air inside that vessel. Let's bring back now David Gallo. He's the senior advisor for the strategic initiatives for RMS Titanic Incorporated, which owns the exclusive salvage rights to the Titanic wreck site. Uh, David, let me ask you about the search area now, because the last update we received from the U.S. Coast Guard was that the scope was about 10,000 square miles. That's about the size of the state of Maryland. And they're looking for something the size of an extended cab pickup truck. Right. Wow. So that's the perspective. Right. Once you hear the, right. the, the begging, do you concentrate on where that was or do you expand? Because thus far you haven't seen anything in that 10,000 square miles. Right. Uh, that's a big area, but they must have uh, reasons to uh, expand the search area to look there. I think you have to continue the air search uh, in case the sub is at the, is at the surface. Uh, but I, I think it's so you can't ignore the banging and you don't have time to wait to analyze the sounds exactly. So you have to assume, I think, that they're human made and then uh, move equipment in that direction right now so that if uh, the analysis happens and you say, okay, that's the sub, that you already have vehicles on the spot. Uh, you know, there's no time here to waste uh, with uh, uh, waiting to analyze before you move that way. And I'm sure the Coast Guard is, is doing that. They're moving. In fact, I heard that, that they're vectoring in on that uh, 
area. So my hope is that they do that quickly. I don't know if they've uh, responded to the banging or sounds with another uh, sound uh, from the surface ship, from a surface ship back to the submarine, if it's a sub, to acknowledge that, yes, we hear you. Um, you know, so that, that's, uh, that we'll have to see if they've done that. And maybe we'll find out at the next uh, update from the Coast Guard. You have a, a dear friend on board. Uh, PH Nargolo is on board. So we are hoping right alongside you that they are all okay and still alive. Can you speak to what role these buoys that are dropped from the air with sonar, the ships and the aircraft can all play sure. together? Yeah, the uh, uh, aircraft, so you can fly overhead looking down at the surface to spot things. You can use radar also to spot things at the surface. Once you get below uh, the sea level, though, the water level, uh, you're in a world of sound, not things you can see easily. But, uh, you know, sound travels a long way beneath the water. You can't hear that from a plane overhead, so they drop these torpedo-like sauna buoys from the plane into the water. They have the... Uh, acoustic listening, so they're, they're listening uh, to the underwater world, and they take the sounds that they hear, they're very sensitive, and uh, send them back to the aircraft for analysis. So it's the only way, really, you can hear what's going on in the deep um, uh, from a plane overhead. Now, I don't know, uh, you know, typically, these are made to find submarines for the most part, and submarines don't go anywhere near 3,800, uh, Navy submarines. Uh, don't go anywhere near uh, 3,800 meters depth. So I'm not sure if the sauna boys uh, can hear that. Uh, but but uh, you have to assume that they can at this point. You know, time is out. Um, anyway, that's the best way to hear what's going on from a, a plane overhead. Again, hopefully we get those answers from the U.S. Coast Guard when they give their update a little later today. David Gallo, thank you. Yeah. I'm thinking about you and okay, everyone who knows Poppy. people on board for sure. All right. The first official day of summer today will be dangerously hot in the south. Nearly 30 million people are under heat alerts this morning, including large parts of Texas. Record-breaking triple-digit temperatures will continue for at least the next seven days. Take a look at the temperatures forecast for today in Houston, 112. Same in Corpus Christi. In Austin, even hotter, 113. Our Russell Flores joins us live from Galveston. It is early there, but still, I bet you're feeling it. <laughs> Everything is bigger in Texas, Poppy, even the heat. Right now, it is about 83 degrees where I am here in Galveston, and the humidity is close to 100. A lot of people in Texas will be coming to Texas beaches just like this one to try to cool off. And nearby Houston, the temperature has not dropped below 80 in over a week. The temperature there during the day has been between 100 and 101. And if you put in the humidity, the heat index has been between 110 and 115, and Houston is not alone. Take a look across the state of Texas. All of those big cities, the heat index has been between 110 and 120. Some of the smaller cities in Texas don't have much relief. They've been between 108 and 112 degrees. Now, all of this has prompted the state of Texas and localities to open up cooling centers. Now, these can be YMCAs or libraries that really just give people a little a little relief during the day where they can go and get some air conditioning. And all of this has been testing the Texas grid. ERCOT, which is the operator of the Texas grid, has been saying that people need to conserve energy. And we want to do our part, Poppy. We are going to try to make chocolate fondue today. We've got some, some chocolate here and also some strawberries. 
It's not that hot yet, but Poppy, I think we're going to be able to achieve this with the Texas heat. <laughs> we'll see. Rosa Flores with the live shot of the morning. Why am I not surprised? And I bet it's going to be super dippy. Is that a word? Dippy is not a word. <laughs> but I will say <laughs> that I think with these temperatures, you'll get there, Rosa. You'll get there. You'll get there. Uh, maybe we'll create dippy. I'll, I'll, be, dippy. I'll be tweeting the photo to you guys. <laughs> I'm going to be making chocolate fondue right here, Gosh. courtesy of the heat of Texas. So, right. so <laughs> many reasons to love Rosa Flores, including the fact that she makes the best of every situation, including when it's 113 degrees. So there you go. Thank you, Rosa. All right, still to come, Hunter Biden's plea deal. Republicans are turning it into a rallying cry. They sure are. Plus, the special counsel who investigated the investigators in the 2016 Trump-Russia probe Set to testify, John Durham publicly will speak before Congress about his findings. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, it really is just a slap on the wrist, and it came one week after the indictment of, of Donald Trump over the documents. Um, for years now, the FBI and the DOJ have known about other crimes potentially committed by Hunter Biden, other Biden family members. And today I have more questions than I have answers. A lot of people, if they get smacked with a gun charge, they don't get to walk away like Hunter Biden. There's a lot more here to this story, I believe, than meets the eye. That's that's not entirely accurate. We will dig into all of this. That was Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace here on CNN this morning last hour, sounding off on Hunter Biden's deal with the Justice Department. The president's son will plead guilty to federal tax charges and has made a deal on a felony gun charge. It is expected that he will avoid prison time. Uh, but Mace is one of many Republicans who are saying this doesn't pass muster in their mind. If you were the president's leading political opponent, DOJ tries to literally put you in jail and give you prison time. If you are the president's son, you get a sweetheart deal. And moments ago, Attorney General Merrick Garland was asked about a double standard at the Justice Department while he was in Sweden. Listen to this. As I said, uh, from the moment of my um, appointment as attorney general, I would leave this matter in the hands of the United States attorney who was appointed by the previous president and assigned to this matter by the previous administration that he would be given full authority to decide the matter as he decided was appropriate. Um, and uh, that's what he's done. And if you have any further questions about that matter, you should direct him to the U.S. attorney uh, to explain his decision. Let's get straight to our colleague, Paula Reed, who joins us now. Paula, good morning to you. Uh, Nancy Mace is among a lot of Republicans uh, both candidates for the White House and also Republicans in Congress who are saying this isn't fair, this doesn't make sense, this is only because his last name is Biden. Tell us more about the reaction and the facts. Yeah, that's exactly why you hear the attorney general there trying to emphasize that this case has been overseen by a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney, someone that he had stay on to continue to oversee this investigation as he has also appointed special counsels to handle the investigations into President Biden and former President Trump. He is trying to preserve and protect the independence and the reputation of the Justice Department, specifically when it comes to Hunter Biden. We know the president's son continues to be a political flashpoint, with Republicans really capitalizing on his personal and legal problems and trying to connect them to his father. But here, after five years of a Trump-appointed U.S. attorney with all the resources of the Justice Department, who's investigated everything from possible foreign lobbying to money laundering, 
All that's left on the table here in this plea deal are two misdemeanor tax charges. So Hunter Biden is expected to plead guilty to failing to pay his taxes on time in 2017 and 2018. He owed about $100,000 in each of those years. He failed to pay by the deadline, but he did eventually pay those taxes along with fees and penalties. And we've learned from our sources the Justice Department is expected to recommend probation for his sentence. Now, Poppy, this is not an unusual way to resolve a case where someone failed to pay taxes for the first time by a deadline. Now, as part of this deal, Hunter Biden can also avoid facing a felony gun charge for failing to disclose his addiction on a form when buying a firearm. It is very unusual at the federal level to be charged with anything like this, but at the state level, it is common to use what is called a a diversion uh, program to avoid sending someone to jail or penalizing them when drugs or alcohol are involved. So he'll have to comply with some court-ordered requirements in order to get that charge expunged. But Poppy, all of this is subject to approval by a judge. But at the end of the day, What the Justice Department is presenting here and what Hunter is agreeing to plead guilty to does not corroborate many of the accusations that have been made against Hunter Biden. Right. That's right. And just to be clear, a deal for a diversion program like this is not rare, maybe rare to be charged federally, but not rare for someone who's not a convicted felon or has not used that gun in the commission of a violent crime. To your point about where this goes, a judge needs to sign off on it. But the, the, the memo from David Weiss announcing this deal used the word ongoing to describe the investigation. Yeah. What does that mean? So a lot of confusion over this, Poppy, because Hunter Biden's lawyers released a statement saying that they believe this plea deal would resolve all outstanding matters. So it's a little surprising when the U.S. attorney released a statement saying this matter is ongoing. Now, in speaking to experts and our sources, it appears that that's just boilerplate language that you put in an announcement because, look, the plea deal, this is not the final disposition of this case. A judge has to approve it. Hunter Biden has to hold up his end of the deal. So clearly this case is going to be open until all of those issues are resolved. But it is expected that there was unlikely that any other issues would be outstanding because it would be highly irregular for the Justice Department to resolve a case with a plea deal if they were still investigating other substantial issues. Now, we know lawmakers have said that if they get a chance to talk to the U.S. attorney, they're going to seek clarity. We may also get some clarification if and when Hunter Biden appears in court to plead guilty and be arraigned, which we expect will happen in the coming weeks. Okay, Paula Reed, thanks for the great reporting. Happening today, the special counsel who concluded that the FBI should never have launched a full investigation into the 2016 Trump campaign's connections with Russia is set to testify publicly before Congress. John Durham had a closed-door meeting yesterday with the House Intelligence Committee Today's testimony will be before the Judiciary Committee. CNN Sarah Murray is live on Capitol Hill. So what do we know first about uh, the, the meeting yesterday and what should we expect to hear today? Well, look, John Durham doing double duty on Capitol Hill this week. You know, we know one of the things that he focused on behind closed doors with the House Intelligence Committee are changes he still believes should be made at the FBI. And that's pretty notable because he omitted a lot of those recommendations from the report he put out publicly. The other thing we should note is that the House Intelligence Committee really tried to approach this in a bipartisan basis. Again, it was behind closed doors. They met in a secure room at the U.S. Capitol. Take a listen to what the top Republican and the top Democrat on that committee had to say after they emerged from hearing from John Durham yesterday. 
I don't think anybody on our committee is, is completely satisfied with the reforms that the FBI has undertaken. They're certainly a great start. They are responding to some of the issues and problems that are identified in the Durham report and in some of the issues that and angst that members of Congress themselves have. There are all kinds of things where we need to, I think, redouble our efforts in, if it's not quite depoliticizing, at least making sure that the FBI acts in such a manner that Americans can't point to their activities and say that's clearly political. And we have a long way to go on that. Now, the FBI has said they've made a number of changes in the wake of the Justice Department Inspector General looking at many of these same issues. But it's notable to see both the Republican and the Democrat there talking about further changes that could be made. I think what we're going to see in front of the House Judiciary Committee, though, is much more of a spectacle today. This is going to be much more of a partisan scene with John Durham appearing before Jim Jordan, who is, of course, the head, the Republican head of the House Judiciary Committee. When I talked to Jordan yesterday and asked him what he wanted to cover with Durham, he basically wants to relay litigate the Russia investigation, cover that the Steele dossier uh, is nonsense, and we may see, you know, a hearty defense of Donald Trump from Republicans on this committee today. All right. We'll look forward to that, I guess. Sarah Murray, thanks so much. <laughs> there is really fascinating new reporting out this morning from ProPublica about Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito and a luxury fishing trip he took with a billionaire who later had cases before the high court. How Alito is responding next. New overnight, ProPublica publishes uh, the latest in a series of investigations into Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito. A report now that in 2008, Alito went on a luxury fishing trip to Alaska with Paul Singer, who it describes as, quote, a hedge fund billionaire who has repeatedly asked the Supreme Court to rule in his favor in high stakes business disputes. But hours before the piece was published, Alito wrote a prebuttal in the Wall Street Journal saying that the charges against him are not valid. CNN's Ariane DeVogue is with us now. So what does this reporting from ProPublica first say? Well, right. We have another justice here accused of skirting ethics rule. And it is so unusual that Justice Samuel Alito actually responded in the Wall Street Journal before it was even published. But we'll get to that in a minute. First of all, the two issues really at play here, uh, that in 2008, Justice Samuel Alito, he took a ride on a private jet uh, given to him by Paul Singer, this GOP player. He's a billionaire. It was to go on this luxury fishing trip. And critically, Justice Alito never disclosed that trip on his annual financial disclosure forms. And of course, that raises big questions for ethics experts. It raises flags because they said, look, it is worth thousands of dollars. It exceeds the gift limits, they say. But if it sounds familiar, remember, we had a similar story with Justice Clarence Thomas. And Justice Clarence Thomas said, like Alito is saying here, that the gift rules at the time didn't require a disclosure like this on a private jet for a social trip. So that's point number one. But secondly, uh, we know that an entity related to Singer and his hedge fund later had several cases that came before the Supreme Court in a long-running dispute with Argentina, and one actually that led to an opinion where Alito was in the majority, and Alito never recused from uh, that case. And he said in the Wall Street Journal, look, my clerks and I, we went through this dispute. We didn't see any names like Paul Singer that might have flagged it. So it wasn't our fault. We went through it. But this was an entity that was related to Singer and his name wasn't there. So look, you had 
have here Alito saying that neither the private jet uh, trip or the uh, failure to recuse was problematic for yeah. him. And the petitioner in that case, NML Capital, you would just have to look it up to see the relationship to Singer, it being his fund. But, uh, ProPublica says that this violates a federal law. That's quite, a, that's quite an accusation. What is, what is Alito saying about that? Well, like I said, Alito says, look, at the time, the gift disclosure did not cover private jets for social trips. And that has been uh, an issue in the Clarence Thomas case because the Administrative Office of U.S. Courts came out and clarified and said, well, now it does. But that's the big question here. Ethics people are really um, raising that flag. And of course, Poppy, it is so unheard of to have a justice of the Supreme Court pen a Wall Street Journal article defending yeah. himself even before ProPublica published it. ProPublica went to the Supreme Court, said, we're working on this story, we'd like comment. And uh, they got no comment. And before they knew it, Alito had gone forward. He had written this very unusual op-ed uh, defending himself with his own byline. Mm. Ariane DeVogue with the reporting. Thanks so much. Thank you. So a federal judge has overturned a ban on gender-affirming care for transgender youth in Arkansas. In an 80-page ruling, Judge James Moody Jr. said that that law violated the plaintiff's right to due process and equal protection under the Constitution. Here's part of his opinion, quote, rather than protecting children or safeguarding medical ethics, the evidence showed that the prohibited medical care improves the mental health and well-being of patients, and that by prohibiting it, the state undermines the interest it claims to be advancing. Close quote. That law would have prevented medical treatment options for trans youth, including puberty blockers and hormone therapy. It's been just over a month since the U.S. was bracing for a surge of migrants when the pandemic-era immigration policy known as Title 42 came to an end. But in the weeks since, the flow of migrants has slowed into the U.S. Instead, they're flooding into Mexico, but still hoping for U.S. asylum. CNN's David Culver spoke with many of them. On sidewalks in El Paso that last month were covered with migrants, today only a handful camp out. But travel more than 500 miles south into places like Mexico City, and the numbers are rapidly rising, overwhelming for the Catholic nuns who run this shelter. Sister Maria Silva says at night, every aspect of the shelter floor inside and outside, covered with the thin mattresses you see stacked around us. En la frontera del centro. Wow, the, this sí. Mexico City, which is very far from the border, sí. as she sees it, has now become a border town, but in the center of Mexico. The migrants here spend their mornings trying to get an appointment with a U.S. asylum officer using the CBP-1 app. Getting a confirmed date, nearly impossible for some. You can tell it's, it's crushing her. And I said, so what are you guys going to do? And they said, just wait, wait for the date. Maria Jose Camacho and her husband, Ender Diaz, from Venezuela, arrived two weeks ago in Mexico with their four-year-old daughter, living here for the past several days. They feel like after Title 42 expired, that it's now much more difficult to try to cross. 
Title 42, a pandemic-era immigration policy, allowed U.S. officials to immediately expel migrants who crossed illegally. Without processing their claims for asylum, those same migrants would often try and try again until they got in. Now, Title 8, back in full effect. Sure, it gives migrants the right to claim asylum, but those who fail to qualify risk being banned from entering the U.S. for at least five years. The result? Migrants flooding into Mexico, where they then wait to figure out how they can get into the U.S. And you can see encampments have already taken up most of this little square here. You can see along this street, you've got an art gallery, a nice restaurant, but then just turn the corner here and look down this sidewalk. You can see tents and families who have been set up for days and weeks with nowhere else to go at this point. We drive an hour outside Mexico City, where a government-run shelter is set up to handle the overflow. Officials tell us most here from Haiti. Makeshift medical stations. This little girl complaining of a sore throat. Her dad says she's not wanted to eat in five days. They pass the time doing chores and playing sports. Their cell phones sit in a web of chargers. Battery power fuels their chances of getting an online CBP appointment. Eventually, they move on. So you can see these folks here are going to be boarding the bus. They're going to go meet with Mexican authorities and get paperwork that allows them asylum in Mexico. Basically, they're trying to buy more time so as to then continue on their journey to get closer to the U.S. southern border, eventually get an appointment with a U.S. asylum officer, and they hope enter the U.S. legally. Since Title 42 expired, migrant crossings are down, for now at least. We visited Eagle Pass, Texas. Main Street, quiet. But Texas Congressman Tony Gonzalez warns what we saw building up in Mexico will push north. So it's almost a calm. I say calm. There's 800 apprehensions a day just in the Del Rio sector. On the other side, of, in the Mexico side, it's just building up, building up. The cartel will adapt, and then that will be the next thing that they send over. U.S. border officials warn as more migrants either fail to qualify for asylum or grow frustrated waiting they're turning to cartel-controlled smugglers to get across. The congressman proposing a bipartisan approach to counter that. So I'm of the mindset, stop sending them down that route. Send them another route. Work visas make sense to me. Remove the politics in it. Remove the you have access to vote or have access to social services and say, hey, do you want to have a job? We have a job for you. Link up the two. Back in Mexico City, we find Maria Jose and their their daughter walking a busy commercial street, carrying a sign and candies. We're a Venezuelan migrant family, and we're asking for your support. I think the biggest concern when you look at this right now, Poppy and Victor, is that you have these Mexican cartel-backed smugglers that really see this as an opportunity, potential business, right? And U.S. officials have warned they've even seen recent cases of those migrants following those smugglers into the Pacific Ocean, swimming into California in the middle of the night. It shows you just how desperate and dangerous some of these journeys are really becoming. Yeah, indeed it does. Fascinating reporting there, David. Uh, Thank you so much always taking us to the middle of where it's happening. David, we appreciate it. Now, a live look at Newfoundland, where crews are hoping that banging sound detected in the search for the Titan submersible will actually lead to a rescue. Why are 
why many are wondering what the passengers on board are going through right now. We'll get some expert insight ahead. And new revelations just into CNN about the man accused of murdering four University of Idaho students last fall. Well, this just into CNN, there are newly revealed court documents about the suspect in the murders of four University of Idaho students. They say that Brian Koberger's DNA is a, quote, statistical match to the knife recovered at the crime scene. Now, Koberger is pleaded not guilty. He will go to trial in October. And our Gene Casares has been following this story from the beginning as they were looking for a suspect even. Gene, good morning. What do we know? Good morning. Well, this is a 33-page document. It just came out. And the headline, really, from this document is that after Brian Koberger was obviously arrested, they did a bugle swab, a DNA swab, in his mouth to get his DNA. And that DNA, according to this document, is a statistical match to that unknown DNA on the knife sheath. Now, this, do this document came about because the defense had filed a motion for discovery. They wanted all the information they could find, which is definitely reasonable, on the DNA, the forensic testing, everything they could find. So this, in a sense, is responding to all of that. But now, also, another headline from this is the first time we are hearing and writing, and we confirmed this uh, through our sources on the very first day of when he was arrested, but the first time it's in a legal document, that the FBI took that unknown DNA on the knife sheath originally to a public genealogy database and they looked at any matches, even remote, of any DNA that matched even in slight part to that unknown DNA, along with old-fashioned investigative work of geography, who would be in that northeast area of the United States. And they told local authorities, Koberger is the person you need to look at. And it went on from there. And then the state authorities took it from there along with the FBI. But you know the irony in all of this is there's a gag order because the judge and the attorneys do not want to taint the jury pool. Sure. But with this information that was thrown into this legal document, the prosecution and many would say this is a huge development in this case. Certainly. And we do not have a response from the defense at all if they do respond because remember there's a gag order. Gene, we appreciate the reporting. Thank, Thank you, you very much. New developments uh, this morning in the desperate search for the missing tour submersible that uh, disappeared on its way to the site of that Titanic wreckage. Crews searching for the Titan submersible heard banging sounds picked up by sonar devices. That's according to an internal government memo. With about 24 hours, though, of breathable air left for the five people on board, the sounds offer a spark of hope in this massive search operation. Joining us now, world-renowned explorer and chairman of an environmental nonprofit, the Solar Impulse Foundation, Dr. Bertrand Picard. He's the son of Swiss oceanographer Jacques Picard, who, among many accomplishments, many, many accomplishments, invented uh, the first submarine to carry tourists. So you are the right person to speak with about this. Um, thanks for, for your time. First, when you heard the news of the banging sounds and the 30-minute intervals, what does that tell you? Do you have as much hope as, of course, so many people do? Well, we always like to have hope. And, uh, you know, my, my father built five submarines in total, including the one he took to the bottom of the Marina Trench in 1960, the deepest spot on Earth. And as a child, 
I was looking at him going for diving and he made more than 2000 dives and I was always afraid that he would not come back. So he was always explaining me all the safety measures that have to be implemented to have a safe dive. And for this, of course, it comes all to my mind when I'm looking at this problem today with the Titan submersible. The first thing is when you go down, if you lose communication, you come back up immediately. If you have a technical problem, you have automatically the safety ballast, the weight that has been dropped, so the submarine comes back to the surface immediately. And this is what makes me really worry about the situation of the Titan submersible, is that the contact was lost during the dive, before it touched the bottom, and the submersible did not come back automatically to the surface. And this is something really worrying. It's not like if it's disappeared on the bottom because on the bottom it can be stuck in a rope, in a cable, whatever, and can be rescued by another submarine. But in this case, I'm really afraid. And what makes you so afraid that it got stuck somewhere in the middle? And we understand there are seven different ways that this sub could have resurfaced beyond even dropping ballasts, as you mentioned. So what makes you so concerned that it's stuck in the middle somewhere? I don't think it's stuck in the middle. I think something really bad happened on the technical side and it probably drunk, uh, sunk, to, to, sunk to the bottom. And uh, in this case, it cannot go back automatically by itself. So was there a problem with the porthole? Was it a problem with the pressure? Was it a problem with the valve? But if a submersible doesn't go back to the surface on itself, on its own, it's really that there is a deep problem. Now, the hope is that it's only a telecommunication problem. The submersible is on the bottom at 4,000 meters. People are still alive, and then maybe they can get rescued by another submarine. But it doesn't appear to be so good. I, I, I'm really afraid. If it was my father's situation, I would really be, be worried. But on the other side, my father always had all the systems to surface automatically if there was a problem. Uh, Bertrand, if they find it, and again, there are 24 hours left, estimate, uh, a breathable air, what's your degree of confidence that they'll be able to pull it to the surface in time to open the, the vessel? In this case, they need another submersible. Uh, I don't see how they can bring a cable this deep with a robot. They need another submersible with an artificial arm that can tie the submarine uh, to the other one, and then they would surface together. Uh, that would be my, my hope. And I remember my father telling me that he always had enough oxygen on board as a reserve to be able to wait for another submersible to be transported, maybe by air or by truck, to arrive to the spot, dive and rescue him. So this is the only thing we can, we can hope, but the situation is really worrying. It's Maybe, maybe a big problem on the way down, and in this case, the submersible is maybe in, uh, in several pieces. It may have imploded. Dr. Picard, thank you so much for helping us better understand what could be happening here. Appreciate it. Yes, and let's pray because let's it's pray. a sad situation. Yeah, certainly will. Thank you. Home construction surged in May by the fastest pace in more than a year. What's behind it? <laughs> Good song. Harry Anton. Uh, Harry, don't, don't do that. In the
U.S. home construction surged in May by the fastest pace in more than a year as builders ramped up activity in both single-family and especially multifamily homes. CNN's senior data reporter Harry Enton is here with this morning's number. Hello. Hello. This morning's number is, we can, there we go, 58,500 because that's how construction started in May on 58,500 private housing structures with at least five units or more. That is the most in a month in 37 years. Your apartment buildings, your condos, your co-ops. And here is what is so interesting to me. Take a look here, the share that five plus unit homes make up of all new home construction. This year, it is 38%. That is up from 34% in 2022, 29% in 2021, 2020 was 27%. At the rock bottom, it was 10%. This is the highest number that the five-plus unit homes make up of new home construction since, get this, 1973. So it is the highest in 50 years, guys. Multifamily homes getting more popular, too? Yes, that is what this is. This is the multifamily homes that are becoming more popular, your apartment buildings, your condos, et cetera. And, you know, why is this happening? Why are people choosing these multifamily homes, these apartment buildings, these condos over, say, your single-unit homes? Number one, it's a safer investment for builders. Remember the 2008 crash, right? You had all those homes that were just sitting there. Mm -hmm. Also, your one-unit houses remain very expensive for buyers. And Americans notice that, right? Because Americans who say now is a good time to buy a house, get that, get this. The number is just 21%. That is way down from 2022, and it was 30%. Look where it was back in 2003. It was 81%. This is, in fact, the lowest number that Gallup has reported yeah. since 1978. Well, he, here, wow. people could get homes at zero, like zero down, and here you had really low interest rates. That's right. Now the interest rates are way through the roof. It's yeah. just not a good time, and the amount of single-unit houses, there's just not that many on the market. You shouldn't touch Harry's screen. because Watch this. Watch this. Whoop. Oh. <laughs> Thank you, Harry. Thank you. Magic. We'll be right back. Poppy is so excited about this morning moment that she didn't think she could contain herself, so she's allowing me to read it. So, here it goes. Things that I don't want to read. All right, I'll do it. You've heard of counting sheep. How about goats? About 40 goats <laughs> casually walk into a new neighborhood. This is near McKinney, Texas. They ate a little bit from everybody's yard uh, all the way around the circle here. Uh, in fact, one of the guys who just uh, just on two legs eating my tree. It was uh, pretty, pretty wild. We're told the goats broke from a larger herd <laughs> grazing nearby to help with the fire season. They were eventually reunited. So. The, the, what our viewers couldn't hear is the camera crew is making goat sounds behind yeah. the camera. Probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> I love them. It's been good to be with you. Good to be with you. Thanks for reading about the goats. Easy trip back to Atlanta. People Thank see you. you this weekend, right? I will wear my seatbelt. I'll be back in my seat on Saturday. CNN New Central is now. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at CNN.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.